2: Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Each episode I'm talking to performers from film, television and theatre about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one I'll be trying to find out about the preparation, the excitement and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. For many people, Jason Isaacs will be best known for his work as Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter films, but his list of credits in film and television is considerable. From the West Wing to Black Hawk Down, the OA to Brotherhood, he's worked with Ridley Scott, Neil Jordan and Paul Greengrass, as well as Matt Damon, Mel Gibson and Julianne Moore. He's played soldiers a number of times during his career. But I was interested to hear about one of the earliest, where he played the role of Frank Collins in Linda LaPlante's 1992's Civvies. I caught up with him at home and we talked about it. Hi, welcome to this week's episode of Who Am I This Time with me, David Morrissey, and my guest this week is Jason Isaacs. Hello, Jason. <laughs> Hello, mate. This is,
0: this is very, very strange. I have to say, admits a, a lot of trepidation going into this.
2: Uh, well, we'll be um, gentle with you. We'll be gentle. It's not so much that.
0: It's just sometimes, often, uh, I think that talking about acting is a bit like dancing about fishing or something like, I don't know. I mean, I can do it because I can lean into my own, you know, uh, how interesting I think I am and how fascinating the process is as much as anyone. But some part of me thinks it's all utter bollocks, and the people I've been around who do it magnificently uh, often couldn't begin to describe it for a second. And I'm not sure that I'll describe accurately anything that goes into uh, what makes it an interesting performance, but I'll, yeah. I'll do I it mean, nonetheless.
2: We're going to talk about one of your early performances, which was in Civis by Linda LaPlante, and you played a, an ex-para coming out into Civvy Street. But, you mm. know, one of the reasons I wanted to do the sh- podcast was when I meet actors coming into the profession for the first time, it's so clouded a mystery, really, sometimes, and they don't know how to work on a film set. They don't know what's expected of them. You know, just mad things like getting an yeah, agent, yeah. getting into drama school. It's, it's, it's You know, it seems like some sort of Masonic sort of uh, profession sometimes, and it's not and i just want to no people- it's a
0: craft i mean some a lot of it is a craft so i've been back i don't know if you have but i've been back to my old drama school and other places actually to talk to actors sometimes and they sit there with their notepads very keen thinking i'm going to teach them something about acting well I, you know i just work with a seven year old kid who's as good as i'll ever be in my dreams um, so what i do when i do those things is i give them really practical things so that on the first few times on a film set they don't feel like twats uh, just knowing who to ask about what particular things and what a mark is and, and whether it matters, uh, you know, what really matters. And, um, and then I, I can see them hungry for me to drop some other Yoda like pearls of wisdom, but I don't think I have them, but I do think you're right. When you first do it, you're not quite sure who to phone if you've got a question and just how to navigate when to come out of your trailer and, you know, who you sit with at lunch and really simple things about what a close-up means. Uh, you know, that the, the the real craft of it. And that stuff I do think you can pass on, but the transforming into another person and how much to be or not be in the moment. And, you know, how much you should or shouldn't judge yourself, how much you have an out of body experience or not. It's different in every job for every person, every time, I think.
2: I think that's good, though. Even that, saying that, I think, is brilliant, that there is no real sort of place that you will get to where it's always all right. It's different on every, for every person, for yeah. every job. For me, how I react to something on a Tuesday will be very different to how I react to it on a Wednesday, and that's OK. Yeah. You know, it's... And there is this is myth,
0: not... I think... Sorry to interrupt that. Um, there is this myth that we all, as young actors, live with, which is, which is that people who do it properly you know, the, the Marlon Brando's or the Gary Oldman's or the Daniel Day-Lewis's of the world, they really are Hawkeye or uh, whoever it is they're playing. And how, we just feel like we're pretending a lot of the time. But you have to remind yourself that even when Daniel Day-Lewis is getting lifted into and out of his wheelchair and having his bottom wiped by people, he knows where the mark is. He stops when they say cut. He has lunch at lunchtime and he phones his wife, you know. So no one is ever fully in there. It's just how many different ways can you trick your imagination? so that the other voices in your head stop. And as far as possible, you are that person uh, whilst always being aware that you're pretending. How do you quiet down the voice that goes, you're pretending, you're pretending, and they all know. You
2: know? But Like with Frank in Civis, which I saw... Re- when did you last see it, by the way?
0: Oh, about 500 years ago. I can't, I can't bear to watch <laughs> it, know. Yeah. I couldn't, I mean, I, I can't watch anything, even contemporary, but something that far back, I just think it's, uh, I think it's horrible. You
2: know? So it's a real transformation because it's so unlike the Jason, I know it's an amazing piece. So watching it again, I was like blown away by it. actually uh, from, from I'm your I'm sorry point you, to- you had to watch it. I apologize. No, it was, for- it was great. It was great to watch, but also, you know, I remember cause we're mates. I remember around about that time, we used to always get meet up and play football on a Tuesday night. And, um, we had a big, big actors' game of football. And yeah, gradually
0: you- that game stopped because when it started, people were going, don't, don't tackle too hard, I'm working. And then when it took more time, people were putting the braces on and the Raljeks and the other different implements, stops to getting injured, then it started being just meeting in the pub and then people just didn't meet anymore. And it, we, it, we, we we withered, <laughs> the game withered with us. I think. We
2: forgot about the football and just went to the <laughs> post-game drinks, wasn't it? That was yeah. what happened. But I remember being on the pitch and knowing you and you just got civvies. And at one point I saw you sort of start to march up and down the side of the pitch in a really? very yeah. different physicality. And when I watched civvies recently, you're, Body and the way you mo- you you sort of lean into your walk uh, is completely different. So can I just yeah. ask you a little bit about? Because I know later on when you did Black Hawk Down, you went and trained with the. It was the. Ra- trained with the
0: Rangers, yeah, in Fort, Fort Benning. Benning, Georgia. Yeah.
2: Did you do similar things with the Paras? Well, here?
0: yeah. <laughs> I'm really going to expose myself here. So, just plant this seed. This will come up much later. We, when my missus and I it was then my girlfriend, uh, were watching Friends back in the day. They had an episode about the freebie list, like who, if you came across, you'd be allowed outside the relationship to just shag because why not? And Juliette Binoche was mine. Right. Uh, so that 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 will come back later. So first, of all, I'm going to tell you how I got this job. So uh, you know, uh, yes, it is a transformation for me, and I had. I had always been that kind of actor that I was not comfortable being myself on camera. I needed to find someone else. Probably why I was drawn to acting. I needed to find someone else to be, uh, to release me from me. And, um, I had that same day, I think I had gone to audition for the series soldier, soldier, oddly that, you know, some of those actors played football with us. Um, and, uh, and soldier, soldier, they'd, maybe it was the day before they'd phone my agent and they'd go, look, he's really nice. But he's obviously not a soldier. He's a very nice, you know, well-spoken middle-class boy or something. And uh, the casting director of Sibby's had sent a message to my agent going, look, the director of this thing comes from documentaries. He's done one drama doc. He doesn't get acting. So if Jason comes in as his normal chatty self, he's never going to get the job. So I told him to come in far more in character. So I was unshaven and I went in, in the closest I could get to tough guy clothes, which I think was a leather jacket in those days. And... Uh, and I was kind of monosyllabic and I lied about, you know, many members of my family being in the armed forces. And I was deli- deliberately a bit slower than I am in life. You know, I'm very quick to interrupt and to speak quickly and try and sound clever. And I, I did the opposite. I took, you know, I took a moment whenever everyone finished speaking and, I, you know, I looked like I was having trouble processing it. And then I answered slightly obtusely. And I, it was like, I was uh, uncomfortable being there. And when I then got the job, um, In fact, I I think they had a screen test. Linda LaPlante had found out, looked at other stuff and realised I wasn't who I was pretending to be and reacted against me. I think Pete Howitt, who ended up being the series, he also screen tested and one or two other people. And they all had to write down secretly on a piece of paper who they thought did best after the screen test. And and they had all said me, thank God. Uh, But it was clear that I just wasn't that bloke or anything like him. And that's fine, because that's why I liked acting. But no one was comfortable with it. Carl wasn't, the director wasn't comfortable with it at all. He'd come from the Francis, wasn't it? Carl Francis, he wanted authenticity and I wasn't that at all. Um, So I phoned the producer and I said, listen, uh, you know, I'm playing this tough guy in this series and thanks very much. I can't do a push-up and I haven't had a fight since I was 12. And what can you do? So I said, I think I speak for the rest of the cast. I don't know them, but I'm sure we'd all love some kind of training. So she arranged a week in the Brecon Beacons uh, with some ex-paras and SAS guys. And all the other actors cried off. Said, oh, I'm too busy. Or, you know, my mum's got a knee in plaster, whatever it was. There was only me and Eddie O'Connell who were left to go and do this thing with these bunch of guys who hadn't seen each other since the Falklands. The show was about people who had been in the Falklands come back and not be able to settle back in real life. So when I went off to there, the first thing is that Eddie, wanting to immerse himself, said, all right, Frank, how's it going? And I went, no, don't do that, mate. It's going to be a really hard week. Just, Just call me Jason. He went, all right, Frank, I've got your back. And God bless him, that was his process, but I was freaked out by it. And these men, uh, SAS Amparas, took us up the mountain. And because there were only two of us, and there were like five of them, they basically forgot we were there. And they pushed us way too hard. And we got to the point of fatigue and hypothermia and panic really early on. And we got to the top of a mountain. I just shat myself. A, a very heavily loaded rucksack, a Bergen, blew off like a feather. And then we sat down for a minute to try, try and wait for the winter. to uh, die down. And they all start telling stories to each other. They weren't really there for us. But at that point, they were. and one guy who I mean, should be nameless, but he was in the SAS and he, he went out to the Falklands early before the task force landed. And his job was to create sabotage. So he was telling, gleefully telling these stories about how he would uh, kill people at night, kill as many people as he could at night. And then he would lie in a self-dug trench during the day, kept warm by the entrails that people had killed. And then uh, it finished his story. We're all, you know, my jaw was slack. They weren't. They'd all heard things like this before. They all told hair-raising stories. And then the guy in charge of us went, you know what? It's too cold. We're going to double up in sleeping bags. And I had, to, <laughs> I had to spoon with him in a sleeping bag, which I remember. <laughs> and Anyway, after, after four or five days of this punishing, punishing regime, in which they didn't mind the fact that I was pathetic. They told me afterwards, look, the point was to break you down and see what you're made of once you're broken down. You were easy. You broke down in 10 minutes. It didn't take three days, but it was really about who you are then. Um, We marched down the mountain and there was the BBC folks there uh, with a photographer and um, they wanted to take our bags off us. And I went, I'll do it. And we, we, me and Eddie both did. We marched, we ran, we put the bags down. We didn't want anyone to do anything for us. So, so you know, as pathetic as it seems, you know, we hadn't been to the Falklands, but we'd spent a week in the Welsh mountains or five days in the Welsh mountains. And, and that, when you're acting and you're trying to draw on memories of, bonding or adversity or whatever it doesn't matter if you know you're meant to be playing uh, a scene where you're in Rwanda and a thousand people have been hacked to pieces and you're really only remembering the time your cat got run over whatever gets you there emotionally so that was enormously useful emotionally to us but the physical thing (laughs) I went I asked another guy who plays play football this Doug Hodge. I said mate I've got to go and play a tough soldier and I'm my body's pathetic it's puny I look like Charles Hawtrey." And I've only got a few weeks. He said, well, he said, well, I know a celebrity trainer, but he he I don't know if he'll take you. He, you know, he trained Madonna and he trained Christopher Lambert for Tarzan. He really, you know, he only takes very famous people. He said, I'll give you his phone number. Don't say you got it from me and, and try and name drop. That might help, I don't know. So I phoned him up and uh, he said, hi, who's this? And I said, hi, my name's Jason Isaacs. I've just got the lead and I went into obnoxious boasting. You know, I've just got the lead in a giant television series. It's Linda Plum. I got your number from Madonna. And, uh, and I know Christoph as well, and he said he did amazing things with his shoulders and his strength, and he went, yeah, yeah, sure. So where are you? And I said, well, I'm in North London. He said, I'm in Notting Hill. and you come over to my gym? I'll have a quick look. So I go over to his house. The top floor had, had a glass roof. I remember that, and it was all a gym. It was empty. There was no one there. It was like one person in the corner. Basically, it was empty. And he said, so tell me the story. And I said, well, the story is I've got to look like I've been a tough soldier for 25 years. I can't do a push-up, and I've only got two weeks. And he said... Blimey, all right, take your clothes off, down to your undies. You wearing undies? I said, yeah. He goes, take them off. He said, make muscles. So I stood there and I made muscles. So he went, no, nah, but really, really, like, really like a gorilla. Don't be embarrassed. So I did it. And he went, yeah, two weeks. <laughs> like, just march up and down the room, like, really like you own it. Like, heavy like a gorilla. So in my underpants, in my tighty whities, I marched up and down with my making muscles. And, and I got to the corner. There was somebody on this weights machine lifting very heavy weights with their leg. And they looked up. And it was Juliette Benoche, And I thought, well, that one's gone. <laughs> That's never going to happen, is it? That was
2: your, fr- your freebie yeah. was gone from there. Never
0: going to happen. Anyway, so I did, you know, I did as much research as I could. Subsequently, and sub- I played soldiers many times. I spent more time with soldiers. But there is a military bearing. You'll know, having done it yourself, we end up playing lots of coppers and soldiers. First of all, they stand symmetrically. Never stand on one leg with the other one slightly cocked. It's always symmetrical. Hands often on hips in ways that are unnatural for most people. Um, and shoulders back and hips forward. You know, they're so used to being on parade, and, and very it's not only are their body set that way, but they want to project that. So, uh, yeah, I think I probably did absorb yes, some all, of that. You did, and also possible. I think
2: the other thing that comes across, and many things come across, watching it again, but that idea that you're always on, you are never relaxed because you yeah, yeah. you've been in an environment for many years where something can happen life threatening at any second. And when you come into Civvy Street, you, you don't just drop that. You still have this to- yeah, total yeah. vigilance in your body all the time. you just held. Well, it was before the phrase
0: PTSD became commonplace. I don't know if it existed then. But, and so then people were saying things like shell-shocked or, you know, various euphemisms. And it wasn't really acknowledged by the British or any other army at that point, even though America had seen what had happened after Vietnam. Um, and the people that I met, you know, Linda LeBlanc wrote this about people she knew, personally well, had tried to set up in a minicab business and had all gone south for them. Uh, And, uh, you know, there were a bunch of, uh, what was intriguing then and never went away from me in in subsequently playing soldiers is how intimate these men were with each other, how they didn't try and be macho with each other. They didn't have to be macho. They'd been in the most uh, alpha male environment you could be in. So on the one hand, they were capable of immense brutality, uh, but also capable of incredible tenderness. With each other because they didn't have to. It wasn't like people would get out of their car and have a fight or have a fight at the pub or something. You know, there were much bigger, and more stressful times they'd been through, and so it was this dichotomy between how uh, vulnerable they were with each other, prepared to be with each other, and, and how uh, and the the fronts they put up to the world and how they engaged with the world in this ultra alpha male way. Um, and it was really eye opening. But what was interesting about the series, and I'm jumping slightly to the aftermath of it being on is that the public couldn't handle it at all and the, the government were furious. There was a columns in the Daily Mail. There were actually questions asked in Parliament how disgraceful it was. And, of course, journalists went to serving soldiers and they went to the serving head of the military and they went, it's, it's, it's disgusting. They should say this about our soldiers. But actually, we were getting giant mailbags from homeless soldiers and soldiers in prison. who sent a photograph. There were so many parades in one wing, they had a, a cake with the wings on it, you know, for someone's birthday. And, and so there was this... It was absolutely eye-opening that there were people all around us in those days who came straight back from war, straight back from zones where, you know, death, as you say, is around every corner and expected to go to the supermarket and do the pickup from school and handle, you know, handle a marriage. They could, you know, the the stories of the numbers of people who, you know, the wives woke up with their husbands with their hands around their throat or, you know, punching the walls and stuff. It just now it's commonplace, but then I'd never heard of it.
2: And did you meet soldiers who were um, sort of on civvy streets? I know you met the guys up in the Brecon Mountains, but did you meet people who were going through the D-mob side of it that that you portray so brilliantly?
0: Um, I didn't. I want to say I did. I have subsequently lots of times. I met them on Black Hawk Down. I met all the people who had survived, many of the people who had survived that night in uh, Mogadishu. And then on Green Zone, all the people in the scenes with me that aren't Matt Damon, are, the, are genuinely currently or ex-serving soldiers. And there was a big mix amongst them. Some of them for whom they were the best days of their life. Some of them had managed to, kind of managed to accommodate normal life. Some of them couldn't cope with it being behind them and, and uh, were now doing private contracting work. But some of whom were broken, you know, unquestionably broken and damaged and dangerous too. At the time I didn't, I trusted, and I was right to trust, Linda's writing. Linda captured perfectly something I would only see for myself years
2: later. She, she does a brilliant thing in your it, which is that sense of these are the men that we created and yeah. we're fine with them when they go and do our, which is always true. You know, it's like the Rudyard Kipling Tommy poem or whatever. We're fine when they're off doing our, you know, what we want them to do, but when they come back, we have no responsibility for them. And that that sense of watching, I think what's you know, there's a sense that Frank is a difficult character and does yeah. terrible things, particularly, you know, there's a lot of, there's a sense of violence around his wife that's really unsettling. Yeah. But because we see that he is a damaged man that has been put into those situations and left uh, without well, any... left
0: to come back. I mean, there's there's an element to it that I I understood then, and then I had confirmed on Black Hawk Down, and, and, and you know, i played soldiers like four or five times now, which I think the public don't understand and is slightly uncomfortable, which is that when you sign up for that stuff, you train for it, you want to do it. You're in your element when it happens. Now, you're not in your element if you die or sometimes you see your friends die or you get injured and you wish you hadn't and it traumatized you. But for some people, you know, if you train to be a boxer, you want to get in the ring and see if it works. If you train to be a footballer, you want to get on the pitch and kick it. It doesn't matter how much someone pays you. A lot of people want to go to war because it's what they train for. They love getting there. They love being good at it. It's addictive. It has a, on some people, not all people, it has a damaging long-term effect. I mean, of course, it's. I read a lot about it at the time. I, subsequently, I got to meet more people, but I remember reading about it at the time, uh, and that when people come back from war, it is completely natural and right, and not psychiatric damage at all, that they should have a period of time when they reacclimatize to the pace and lack of danger in life, it would be odd if they didn't. Now, if they're still doing it a year or two later and they're still beating up their wives or they're still, you know, freaking out or drinking bottles of whiskey a day, you know, if they get that far, if they don't commit suicide at the rates they do, then, then fine. But it is right to have a period of time uh, adjusting because it would be unnatural yeah. not to. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't get to meet as many as I did. I trusted Linda's writing. I've subsequently seen it confirmed mm-hmm. for myself when, amongst the people that I know. But it just felt real. It felt right.
2: When you return to a profession again, so when you go from you've played a soldier here, then three or four years later, you play another soldier, do you re-research or do you rely on what you've done in the past or do you just constantly accumulate a research around the profession?
0: I think there's a general understanding you have of warriors, people who want to be warriors and how they fight and what it's like being back in life. But when I was playing an American uh, who had fought in that one night in Mogadishu. I needed to meet those people and see what that one night had done to them. Now, subsequently, America's been at war, and the, you know, the, the world, but the Western forces have been at war for decades in urban warfare. It's a different thing. It does a different thing to you. So every time you try and get it specific, look, every time, I, I'm... I, I always try and find one person to be. You know, the audience doesn't know, and I, I'm not a very good mimic, so I'm mimicking them, but they don't realise, you know. So, so I, you know, I, the guy I played in Black Hawk Down based on a particular guy who I taped, who trained us in Georgia, who'd had a bullet through the jaw, a bit like Jerry Adams, has spoken a very particular way. Um, uh, And in Green Zone also, I based it on someone around me. Uh, Everything. When I did a series called Brotherhood about gangsters, it was one of the teamsters on the set. No, they don't know. I
2: know. I've taped them. And And you're only taking an aspect of those people, aren't you? You take like, you know, there's a bit that you're adding from them into the character you're portraying.
0: Yeah, well, that's why when, you know, this whole thing about talking about acting, how do you approach something... You do everything I, I love the research bit I and mean, i love when we get to shadow cops and politicians and plastic surgeons and pimps and drug dealers and i love all that stuff because they tell you things that uh, they would never tell a journalist they wouldn't tell their own family you know they, they're just it's like they've got free therapy they get to show you things they don't get to show other people um but yeah i splash around there is no approach i don't some people i'm jealous of them who went to a kind of method drama school write a biography and do a bunch of stuff i do everything and it might be the way they walk for me, it's often the way they talk. I start with a voice because I'm not comfortable with my own voice. I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm more Liverpool talking to you than I would if Hugh Grant was doing the podcast. I'd sound like him. <laughs> if I was doing David Tennant's, I'd probably be Scottish, you know. Yeah. Um, so I've got to find the way that they talk to start with. Uh, and then you never know what bits will work. It might be a phrase. It might be an attitude. It might be none of the stuff that you've picked up with them, but it might be. So... Uh, you, yes, said, I,
2: you, you said you said that when you were younger, that you would look at people who were, looked like they were self-confident, that they were happy in their skin, and you were jealous of them. And then you wanted to know how you do that. And then you got into a rehearsal room and went, oh, this is how you do it, by playing someone else. I mean, is, it, is there a way that, you know, are you more confident in other people's skin than your own? Always.
0: Yeah. I mean, once you get some anchors in the world, once you get a bit older, but also, you know, a family, and particularly when you get kids, you go, well, I know this one thing. I know I am. I am their father. That is unquestionable. Everything else is always up for grabs, you know, who I am. And I, and, um, I grew up, I grew up, you know, where you grew up in Liverpool and then we moved to London and I had, I had multiple personalities, depending on who I was mixing with, terrified that the crowds would overlap each other. And, uh, Still to this day, it's a social weakness that my kids will pick up if they're there, that I'm suddenly going a lot more Australian when I'm talking to Australian people or whatever it is, you know, and maybe even shifting my attitudes, hopefully never shifting into something I would be ashamed of afterwards. But um, and um when I'm playing someone else, I'm, I'm comfortably just them. They are, you know, or even if they themselves might be. There's a misconception, I think, that the public have, even my own family, I don't know if yours do, that acting is about learning the things that you say and the faces that you pull. It's about the outside, and, uh, and anybody who even scratched the surface knows that acting is about building the ninety-nine point nine percent of the character that uh, isn't in the script and that you know that, that is deciding what not to say and what they want the other person to say. Um, so that's something that uh, you know. I'm, I'm, I am more comfortable, not more comfortable. That's not to but I am, ha- I am happy when it feels safe. When I'm there, I know I'm okay to be, uh, you know, I like people to like me. You know, most of us like people to like us. I'm I'm aware, maybe over-aware, over-concerned of what other people's impressions of me are. But often the characters I play are not. Yes, that's, that's what I was going to say, really... because
2: you play a lot of people like that, and I do too that, that are not likable. I mean, there's a sense of whether we have to like our characters. I often think, well, I don't, if I met him, I probably wouldn't like him, but I have to really have great empathy and understanding to this person to do him justice.
0: Yeah. Well, they think they're right. I mean, that's, that's something that I, uh, even before I was acting, even as an amateur, I was, I was studying law uh, when I first started doing it. And, And I think I understood early on one of the complex things of life, which is that Awful people that I would think are awful, terrible people think they're right. And growing up as a young Jewish kid, you know, the worst person that ever lived was Hitler. And, and I realized early on that he thought he was doing the right thing. And around him were many people who thought they were doing the right thing too, and they could justify it. So you and I have played a lot of antagonists. And, and I'm sure we're sick of being asked the question, do you like playing the hero or the villain? Because genuinely, I, I, would, I hope I, I'm not broke enough to have to take a part if he's clearly the villain to himself. Donald Trump looks in the mirror and thinks they're all fucking idiots. I know what's what, and I and I know which race should be superior, and I know how to run things and how to talk to people, and um, yeah, you know, Frank, if you spend a life of violence, being violent, violence being your currency, that's your first go to in in a situation of conflict.
2: I did. Um, do, I did do one film a while ago, and it will remain nameless, but um. It was a foreign company who were doing it. And after a day's rushes, I was playing quite a sort of complex evil guy. And after a day's rushes, the producer came up to me and said, yeah, we've been watching the rushes. And it's it's very subtle, very complex. We don't want that. He's just evil. (laughs) (laughs) He's just evil. And I said, "Okay, great. You know. (laughs) So, well, look, there are people
0: who grew up thinking the world is Darwinian. No one calls a lion evil at a watering hole for Mm -hmm. eating a wildebeest. Mm. They go, fuck it. You know, that lion knows I'm more powerful. I can eat that thing. I will. And there are people to whom the world is that they go. If I'm stronger, I can dominate the weak. I can take what I want. The world is cruel. It's been cruel to me. Everything else is sentimental bullshit. And you can justify that, too. But at least that person believes that they, you know, it, it lives within their own mm. internal ethical moral universe. And if it doesn't, there are people who cross it and go, I know I'm doing something wrong, but fuck it, I want what I want, and I'm, yeah. I'll deal with the consequences later. Yeah. It's when they're written not to do that. Uh, you and I have both been up for many similar parts. I'm sure you even up playing many I Wanted and vice versa. But <laughs> but um, they think often, the people making films, that, that if you put you or I in it, we will bring some air of power or something sinister, and you won't. It's, it's always the story that gives you that power. In fact, it's the other actors that give you that old Shakespearean saying you can't play the king, you know. If you come on screen and you don't have any agency, you don't get to do anything bad and no one's frightened of you, I don't care how gravelly your voice is and how many faces you pull, you, you yeah. look like a twat, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I've been it's- offered many of those parts, which I wish I'd done on a purely financial basis, but I just couldn't step in front of the camera and, and do that badly.
2: You said earlier that you were studying law and then came into acting. Was it a struggle for you uh, to come into the profession in terms of its seriousness or anything like that, how it would be accepted by friends and family that you were suddenly going into a profession that was seen to be very different from the one you were studying?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was. I don't know what class means anymore, but, you know, I come from... um, we we were a family. Uh, if class is defined culturally, we were a very working class family. My dad was very poor. He left home at fifteen. He was an apprentice. You know, he made a bit of money, but we still, you know, culturally, we we had a slightly nicer house than the other people who lived in council estates. But we just watched telly, and no one read any books. And the thought was that me and my brothers would be the first ones to go to university and do proper jobs do a job that, you know, you could actually have a profession. And, and my brothers did. One was a doctor and one did law. And I went off to do law. And, you know, the thinking was you do better than the generation before you. And I did this slightly pretentious, poncy, fun, arty thing uh, as a hobby at college. But the notion that you might then dive into a world that was defined by people living in bedsits and eating out of, you know, pot noodles cans it just seemed suicidal, you know, and, and an insult to everything. My dad, mum, of the sacrifices of to take college. And so when it was hard, but I never made that decision, weirdly. Really. I, I, uh, I thought I'd go to drama school, or I'd audition for drama school, first of all, because it was only 10 quid and it was a day out in London. It wasn't like, I'll go to drama school. It was just, that's a day out from Bristol. Uh, and then when I got in, I'm so, sorry, this is a story I've told before, but it is true, I've never gotten it, that, that I thought I'd get a letter maybe i'd keep and it. it would be on the wall of my legal chambers or my grandchildren would discover it in the attic and go granddad is it true you got into law school but instead there's an amazing woman called jane cowell who was this very tall stentorian kind of posh julie andrews type figure who was a voice coach she came out at central after the recall and she said we'd very much like to offer you a place in september and i went wow and she went i hope you're not fucking us around young man <laughs> And I went, what, what would you get? You know, thousands of fucking people apply to these places. And I was so, you know, I said, no, no, of course I didn't know. that'd be amazing. And I walked down the street in Eaton Avenue in Swiss Cottage, where Central is, thinking, did I, do I want this? Did I just decide to go to drama school? Because that's what I like to do in my life. Or <laughs> is it because a really posh woman swore at me and I'm letting her make the decision for me? Like, what, what, you know, what do I want this? Anyway, I thought, doesn't matter. I'll go to drama school for three years. I can put off being a grown up, and then I can do the proper job with, I don't know what it'll be, but, you know, I can go to the city or something, you know, make my family proud. And after three years, I thought, well, I've just spent three years. I'd better get a job in the theatre. I'd better do one professional acting job once, you know, I was offered a job at the Playhouse in Liverpool. Uh, and then uh, I didn't go because I got Capital City and I went and did that. And I thought, well, I've been, a, you know, part of a small ensemble. It'd be great to be a lead once in something. And I was, and Civis came along. and I thought it'd be nice to do a bit of theatre, yeah, but I've never been to film. And then all of a sudden, it's too late to do any other job. It's yeah. like, what am I going to do? I've got no skills.
2: And you've got... So and you've I never been... really made the
0: decision. So have you made the decision yet? No, I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. I wanted to show you something because my mistress has been clearing out the loft and everywhere else and throwing everything um. away and going mad on, on Marie Kondo. And um, the director of Civis, Carl, who was very upset when he found out that I had a law degree and that, you know, and I spoke nicely and stuff uh, and felt like he'd been cheated so, and he said to the Marine, the amazing makeup girl, woman, he said, like, right, let's toughen him up because he's a poncy middle-class boy. I said, I want a bunch of tattoos and let's get him a chest wig. And she went, what, oh, Carl? He said, yeah, get him a chest wig. And I looked at her and she went, shh, shh. So afterwards she said to me, don't worry. He says, well, get at me, that's stupid. He's gonna change his mind, that's fine. So we went to the London wig company. Everybody turned up because they'd never seen anything like it before. And they fitted me for a chest wig. And I, and I said to Carl at the time, I go, what a chest wig for? yourself! women love rubbing their fingers through your hair. It's sexy. And I went, Tom Jones. You're... It's
2: all Tom Jones, exactly. man. <laughs> I said, that's because you're
0: bald, Carl. They haven't got a choice. That's truly hair on your body. Anyway, they made me a chest wig, which probably looks like a dead cat or something. And I turned up on set to do the first day we would see it in a in a vest, that is shagging my wife or something like that. When I, mean, I had to shoot in prison, this thing, and he goes, there you go. That's good. That's a bit tough, isn't it? I went, no, it's not. It's a bit of hair stuck in my chest. You're mad. Anyway, I found a photograph from the fitting of the chest wig, which I uh-huh. thought I might show you there, <laughs> which is... It's very Borat. Yeah, <laughs> it's unbelievable. I had to wear that. And we had to shoot in a prison one day.
2: Okay, I need won- to describe this for the listeners. Sure. So it's a very... It's an old oh, so I forgot. I
0: forgot this isn't a real Zoom.
2: Sorry. It's go. a Polaroid. It's quite yellowed. <laughs> but it's yeah. you, you with a, quite a white body. and, and Very, very puny body. Uh, and a dead cat. It's a real dead cat. Right I mean, it's the-
0: genuinely ridiculous. And when he's... Uh, we, we brought it to the set. Everyone's doubled over laughing. He says, yeah, no, that's good. That's proper. In fact, the first day we shot, the first scene we shot, I was doing the normal thing. I'd already been on set for other things for a while. I'd never played a tough guy, oddly. You know, it's the pivot around which my career uh, changed. But but um, I was chatting to people, making jokes. Pete it was in it. It was very funny. And Lenny, who became one of my best friends. And, you know... And... and um, we did one moment, and all I had to say was, let's go upstairs. drunk in the kitchen, let's go upstairs. And he goes, cut, and he goes, come the walk with me. And you have to bear in mind, I love Carl. He was a very tough, irascible uh, guy who wanted authenticity, and I don't blame him, and he was, you know. It, so we marched up and down where we were shooting. It was uh, appropriate. It was a, a toilet paper factory, so these gigantic rolls of toilet paper. And he went, I'm going to have to replace you. i never had to do this before. I'm going have to fucking replace you. But fucking middle-class ponce on the act. They're all laughing at you. Everyone thinks you're ridiculous, because i made a terrible mistake casting you. You've got to be fucking tough. When you're going to fucking scare, you've got to command some respect from these people. You know what I mean? It's a fucking joke. So we went back in, and the next shot was me kicking the door open, drunk, to my wife and, and pushing her out the way, which I did, I think, exactly the same as I would have done without this terrifying talk when my balls went into my mouth. And he went, that's what I'm fucking talking about. And uh, from then on, we were firm friends. That but, you know.
2: is brilliant. But then did, did you think I better stay in character when Carl's around or anything like that?
0: Uh, yeah, I think I probably did a bit. I think I could sense it offended him. And I've had that since. So I stay in accent when I play American a lot. I know that everybody does that when you did The Walking Dead. You know, I know that Lenny's down there talking to Andy Lincoln about spurs, and they're, they're, <laughs> they're talking in American accents. you know. Um, <laughs> but I always do that. And I did a film... Uh, I've always done it last the end of last year. I did this incredible film, or it was an incredible experience. Hopefully it turns out to be a good film, which is basically just four people sitting at a table talking. Two of them are the parents of a kid who died in a school shooting, and the other two are the parents of the shooter. And it's years afterwards, and the two parents have not got over it, and they need to meet the parents of the shooter so they can turn him human in their head, because otherwise, you know, they think he's evil and Satan. And um, and it was two weeks. It was just crying and shouting and intensity and pain and grief. Fake, I grant you, but still you do it all day, every day. And I stayed in my accent all day, every day. I would speak to my family maybe for five minutes a day, if that. And I stayed in my accent. I stayed in my accent all weekend. I realized too late that I stayed in my accent. I'd started a tennis club on the Sunday and, I, and they all thought I was American, sorry. And at the rap party, I went, Jesus, I don't need to talk like this anymore. And I went back into this, which felt really weird and alien. This, I couldn't work out who I was. And my fellow actors, who I've become very close to, were furious, they felt she. They felt like I'd been an undercover cop, and they were they were angry at me, and they asked me to go back into what they said was my normal voice because they felt <laughs> like they'd just met me, they didn't know me. So, yeah, I think I probably did unconsciously stay more more London and more uh, not more damaged like Frank was, but stay more that. Yeah, uh, I think maybe we all did. You know, it's something you you drift a bit. You do. You don't become entirely the person. Maybe Daniel Day Lewis does. You don't become entirely the person but you become a bit more like the person just so that it's certainly with the accents. I was talking to someone the other day about this. Um, he says, Oh, I can't do it. I find accents really hard. And I went, that's why you do it all day. So when they say action, you're thinking, "What is? what, what do I want? What do I need? Not how do I pronounce my A's and do I roll this
2: R? We'll be back with more chat after this.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
1: You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com.
2: Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode but also it's a muscularity, isn't it? I mean, it's like if you, like you would, you would treat your body, you go to that trainer to go to the gym. That's what you're doing. You'd need to go to the gym a lot to get the muscles for your body to look good. Accents yes. need, they have muscles in your mouth that have never been used in your own accent. So you have to keep them flexible and, and, and ready. That's for absolutely right. Going. Well,
0: two things, one is you want to, you want to be trying to get it as right as possible. The other thing is, whatever you do, you want it to be so consistent that in the moment when you're thinking, I need you to apologize or I need you to be scared or whatever the hell you're thinking as a character, you're not also thinking, Oh, I've got that weird NG sound coming up, should I bounce off it? You know, you just don't want to think about it at all. No, absolutely. Um, but so yeah, maybe I was it was a bit more macho the set. There was certainly there was a one of the people involved who got uh, it became much too macho and some of the stunt stuff became dangerous. I was hit by a car slightly and they just I think they went further method than I did. Uh, and it was one of the things Lenny and I bonded over because I felt I was in some danger at some point. And, and uh, what,
2: but on that note, there's lots of times when we have to look after ourselves as actors because you can get whipped up into the emotion of what you're doing. And sometimes you feel, oh, it's not not great for me to just step back and go, hang on a minute, is this safe? Or, yeah. or I'm not too... I'm not Even not about safety, but sometimes you might feel a scene is going to a place that you're not comfortable with. In its mm-hmm. storytelling, sometimes, how do you make your voice on a on a set heard? I mean, it's as a leading actor, mm-hmm. some of that is given to you.
0: Yeah, you, have a, you have a lot more status when you're a lead. No question. But are you? you
2: that. The, 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 there is a time, isn't there, when we have to be involved in confrontation, whether it's with a writer, a director, another actor. How do you negotiate that sometimes around that? Uh, uh, the,
0: the sure, how, how do we negotiate it in a? Friendship or a marriage or a supermarket, I mean, I don't know. It, it all depends on the people. I mean, there's no question that a set is a hierarchical place and mm-hmm. the director is pharaoh. So you can have a discussion, but at some point if they go, no, you're doing this or you have to do this, you've got to decide whether you draw the line. I mean, I, you know, when it's your own physical safety, you know, I'm more established now. But there was a scene, I remember, There's this amazing man, Terry O'Neill, who's in it. A big, yeah, yeah. and bodybuilder and seven times European karate champion, and he's a, he's a legend, you know. This was the first acting he'd done. The friend of Linda's, and uh, there was a scene, there was a fight scene. Terry O'Neill could crush me with his little finger, you know, uh, uh, but in nonetheless, in this fabulous fiction I get to live in, By the way, and honestly, there is a hammering next door. I can do nothing about it. It's not happening <laughs> in your house. It's happening here. I'm sorry about that. Um, so uh, I'm having a fight with Terry. It's in a stable, I think. And at some point, in order, because he's 10 foot taller than me, I'm meant to pick up this bucket full of sand and smack him in the face. And Carl... Uh, has set up the camera for a profile shot. Now, if you ever watch old cowboy films or any any Bond film with the sound off, you can see often punches miss by a lot. And the way you get around that is you put the camera behind yeah. the head of the person who's doing the punching or behind, better still, behind the head of the person who is receiving the blow. And that way you can miss them by three, four foot. And as long as they flick their head, it looks like... So Carl goes, it's a full profile. And you can see I'm missing him with this bucket of sand. And Carl goes, you're fucking missing him by miles. Far on. And we had this, you know, I love him, Carl. So it sounds like I'm telling bad stories out of school, but I re- you remember the fun stuff. And we we liked to shout at each other. He was a very shouty guy. And uh, I said, Carl, you've got the fucking camera profile. Obviously, I'm missing him. He goes, don't fucking tell me how to direct. I don't tell you how to fucking act. I mean, just fucking get closer to his face. Well, there is no, there is no close when you're shooting profile. You cannot get close enough to do it. Uh, and I kept on getting closer and closer. And it was still missing him because it's a bucket full of sand. And Terry goes to me because he's... Tough, and his first job, he goes, just hit me. <laughs> he says, just, just fucking hit me in the face. I went, mate, it's a bucket full of sand. It'll break your jaw. He says, I do full contact karate in arenas with like seven thousand people around. I'm fine. I'll roll with it. And I went, I'm not hitting you in the face, of the bucket of sand. And Carl goes, you fucking do it. He doesn't care. Go on. I said, I'm not doing it. And it was a bit of a scene for a moment until we shift. We angled. Our, instead of moving the camera, we angled ourselves around, and it was fine. um But oh hello, no one's coming. Sorry, we'll have to. Either pause, I'll tell them to uh, Emma that we're doing a podcast. Darling, huge. I'm recording a podcast with Dave. So could you not, would you mind? Keep it quiet. I am saying be quiet, but I don't want to be recorded saying shut up. <laughs> so, thank you. We'll keep that in. Yeah, I know you will. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Go on. So you're saying.
0: Yeah, so I, obviously I didn't hit him full in the face with the. But there were a couple of times. Carl wanted authenticity; he wanted to make something real happen, a bit like Paul Gringross So there was a, the other one I remember. And Carl, if you listen to this, I'm not documenting the million times you made the scenes better with your energy and with the you know the the maleness actually he put into it. But you know, he's reminded us how to be macho in many ways.
2: But as you've got more experienced, mm. how aware of the shot, how aware of the camera, how aware of the setup are you, and how? Uh, much of that do you feel is your responsibility I mean I love that part of my job I have to say
0: well you've directed as well that's yeah but bit, you
2: know. do you do you get involved in that do you feel that that's your responsibility as much as everybody else's I know ultimately uh, it's the directors but is it a discussion that you want to be part of
0: I like knowing about it but I, you know I'm aware I've worked with actors who get who, who stick their nose in where it isn't their place to suggest shots or why don't you shoot from higher or lower you know you could cover it this way and you know uh, I think I've gone through phases uh, where I thought it was my job not just to act but to coordinate or manipulate everything else going on in the set. And I passed through that uh, to respecting, they, you know, they've got a way they want to cover the scene. They've got a way they want to cut. I think that how you act in those co- contexts uh, says a lot about who you are, how much you give off camera to people, for instance, mm-hmm. how much, you know, people, uh, people who decide that they're not going to really go there until they do their close-up are not helpful to other people doing their close-ups. And if they don't do it in a wide shot, you know, people who... Mank that just is about to come out, the David Fincher... David Fincher will do 70 or 80 takes and not give notes in between to the actors. You know, it is right to do that. Going into the film, you know you're going to do that. I remember doing 121 takes of something with PJ Hogan on Peter Pan and and having to be there every time. So, yeah, I like to know what the frame is because very early in Capital City, which was about city dealers, I'd gone and spent time with them in the city and they're... They were all at the time doing tons of cocaine and champagne and buying Porsches with cash and all this stuff. And, and they all were twitchy. Everyone was twitchy all the time. Their legs were bouncing up and down. and So I was doing the bouncing up and down leg thing. And on about the episode three, one of the cameramen said to me, listen, mate, you might not want to do the stuff with your leg. You know what I mean? You're doing it a lot. And I said, well, they always do it. I'll be now because, yeah, I'm just saying that in the close-up, it looks like you're wanking. And I went, you could have told me that a few episodes ago. Um, so i like to know what's in the frame. But I'm aware of that thing that you and I will remember, maybe you'll listen to There were some masterclasses filmed for television with various, uh, the great, the good, and Brian Cox did one on tragedy, and Mariah Aitken did one on comedy, and Michael Caine started it all off with one about just film acting. And it bred a generation of androids who don't look at you when they do their close-up and are trying so hard not to blink that they forget to mean anything or want anything. So there's a lot of people who try and make sure their close-up is as flat as possible to the lens and, that's just not necessary. do you watch not the monitor? Initially.
2: Do you watch the monitor on set? Do you watch uh, playback? Yeah,
0: yeah, I do. Well, because I'm, I, I'm so often playing something so far from me that has an accent, or you know, such a completely different agenda from who I am, and I, uh, and i You can be unaware of what you know how what you're doing is giving the wrong impression uh, of something, or you think that you're going through everything. And there's this thing about do nothing you know, well, nothing is nothing. You can put a mannequin on screen. You're always thinking something and deciding to do nothing or holding something back, you know. Uh, And so sometimes I think I'm doing nothing and experiencing it all mentally and actually just look like I've had a stroke, you know. So I just, I do like to watch it. I do like to, and I also like to know, oh, I thought all that stuff was a bit of the story I'm telling and it turns out it's not on camera. Until the camera reaches that point, you don't see me. So there's no point me having done the, you Know flouncing out the room or whatever the hell it is. I like to know what the camera is catching.
2: And do you get when you watch the final uh thing all put together at the first screening or whatever it is? Are you able to just hand this over then? Uh, or or does it still when they've cut your favorite scene? No, it kills or me, is it? I mean, I
0: tell you the one that I tell you, the thing I don't like is when the scene is edited in a different order and you go, Well, if I knew that was coming after that, I wouldn't have done that, I would have done this, you know um you have to let it go because it's a director's medium and an editor's medium which is the director you know by proxy um but the really the thing is to lose yourself you're not a proper judge of yourself you might there are scenes in which you think i was feeling everything my god i've never felt anything so much and it just doesn't come across and there are scenes in which you're desperate to go to the toilet and you just want to get the takeover and it, you know, it looks like you'd ever be more bothered by anything in your life. And so you're not the best judge watching something of whether you're engaging or moving. Um, I think, I don't What well, do you like to watch yourself? Do, do you do all that?
2: Yeah, I do. I would, no, not that I like it, but I think it's important. I do it less and less as I get older because of vanity. But I mean, I think <laughs> you know, as a young actor, I was watching myself all the time and I would have to watch myself a lot to get beyond the vanity, to get beyond yeah. the fact that I think, oh, is that my nose or, my goodness, you know, look at the state of me. It's just, it's a fine line,
0: isn't it? Yeah. It's a fine line because, not just Michael Caine, but but, uh, there is this notion around of creating a performance. And there's a lot of actors I work with, generally younger people, who have so fully prepared the scene that you could drop your pants, spontaneously combust. You could do anything in the scene. You could burst out crying or laughing, and it wouldn't in any way alter what they're doing. And some of the very, very best, most engaging, most... Present most honest performances I've ever seen have been off camera, uh, and, and I include myself in that because you think oh, I've got it now. I try and go last when I can, which is generally if you've got a lead in something, they think they do need the respect of going first. I want to go last. I want to see what other people are actually going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, when they because I'm I always commit off lens, but they don't, and then it gets me. I think, okay, I, I know the map through this now. I know mm-hmm. what this scene is. I know what the people are doing. And then the camera points at me, and I go, why couldn't I get there then? I've just been doing it for 12 hours for other people. I've come and why, why couldn't I reach those points? And it's because it's hard not to have that outer body, that third eye as well, watching yourself. Yeah, so, the, really so, that hard. whole thing about looking at the monitor and just trying not to construct a performance, trying to think, what do I want? You know, The best director I ever had was not on film, it was on stage. And he would stop the rehearsal all the time and go, What are you trying to change? And I'd, I'd start answering you're go, No, don't talk to me. Show me that you are changing the other person, that you are making them interrupt you, you are making them apologise, you're making them love you. So don't forget about yourself. And, and sure enough, that's what I see when I see people off camera and myself doing proper work that is fully engaging, is focusing on the other person in the scene. That's what will free you, you know.
2: Mm, definitely. And in nowadays in episodic television, it's quite rare to start a big TV show and have all the scripts. Mm. Um Do you get involved with the projection of what's going to happen? You know, we might be, we might have in a 10-part season, we might have episodes one, two, and three to start with. Are you getting involved with the writers and the the showrunners at that point about the the Bible going forward or character projection or anything like that?
0: Well, who wouldn't want to? I mean, in principle, because, you know, if you did a play and you're only given the first act, I mean, you know, the, our job as an actor, if we're lucky and given the controls, is to shape the revelation of this story, both the pace of it, the surprises of it. They don't always exist. And I've been uh, executive producer or a producer on some of the television stuff I've done in the past. And in some of those instances, it was genuine. They, they did open the doors. I was thoroughly involved, roll my sleeves up. Even one or two I, I'd helped to generate at the beginning. And then there's times when they gave me that credit because it was felt to be appropriate for whatever my agent managed to, but they didn't really mean it at all. They didn't want me anywhere near any of it and they resented it. And I sensed that early on and backed off because it was just creating tension. Um, You know, I I love to be, I do think there's a young actor I'm friendly with who's always at the moment furious about these terrible scripts and this fucking idiot who's directing and he's driving himself mad. He's just, you know, uh, and I feel terrible for him because I remember being like that, I and mean, I've got so many friends who are writers, and directors and producers, and, you know, we all have by this age. Uh, everyone's doing their best. You know, they're doing their very best to do their very best. It's hard. Writing is hard. Directing is hard. Producing is hard. So I think i would probably got uh, less, uh, you know, I, I've wanted to dive into it and fight my corner less as time's gone on. I did learn very early on on, on the Capital City, my first big television series, that once you start writing notes to people, don't even think it was emails then and they get circulated around in many different colors, many different people, the creative process is dead, you know, so you're better off thinking just wait, not to hold the setup, never to hold shooting up, but who is the person I can actually have a conversation with that doesn't seem confrontational. that seems creative. And often it's a, you you can waste a million words when you just on the set go about a look there, or we lose that line and they look at it. If they're good and they're empowered, they go, yeah, that makes sense. Or that doesn't work for me. And so i Uh, I think I used to do stuff with words, and now I I, I want to show it more.
2: And when you went from the UK to the US, was there a big difference there in their working process? Fuck
0: yeah. Did you not find that on on the working digital? I think it was... It's a different universe. It looks the same from the outside. My lesson was learned very early on. I was on the West Wing. I was living in America, and I did a few episodes of the West Wing, one of my favourite TV shows. It had won... By then, the actors had won, I don't know, a million Golden Globes and Emmy. So they were just amazing. And the writing was, it was all amazing. And I was so thrilled and starstruck to be there. And uh, I was doing a scene with uh, the great Brad Whitford, who played Josh in it. Yeah. Incredible actor playing, incredible part. And we did this scene, and I made a joke of a line. I made it sarcastic. I, I kind of said the line as if it was in inverted commas and it was, you know, vaguely witty and funny. And so he said to the, again, multiple Emmy winning director, he went, well, I can't do this next line because it's making fun of Jason, but he already made fun of himself, so it doesn't make... And the director goes, yeah, yeah, let's just lose it. And the writer came storming across the set and went, what do you say?" And the director, you know, said, well, well this line now doesn't work because Jason made a joke, so it's fine, we can just move it. We'll just lose it. And he went, well, I want to see it. i shoot it, I want to see it, I'll decide in the edit. And I'd never seen the power structure in that way. You know, the writers on... Well, there were no writers on British television when he did they weren't around. Certainly, didn't have showrunners who had power over the director and the actors, and um, it was an early lesson that American television is a very, very different beast. And you know, by the time the script reaches you, it's been through a dozen pair of hands, all of whom get paid seven-figure sums, and they don't like to be contradicted or, or second-guessed.
2: Yeah, and also the you know the, the whole thing is on the line, isn't it? Careers are on the line. I mean, when I first did The Walking Dead, I remember after about two or three scenes going to the director, I had to go and find him. I didn't know where he was. He was somewhere else. And I said to him, are we okay here? Is this okay? And he looked at me like I was, you know, some madman asking him this question. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, yeah. You know, and then I had to go and find the showrunner. and The, the real the, power. The Yeah, it was that thing you said before about who who has the power to sort of change. Yeah. Who is the person who is given the power? And, and that can, in each film set, I have to find out who that is. And sometimes sometimes I find out it's me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Don't you find it weird that sometimes, whether it's on film or television, there is a script written by very smart people that has been through all kinds of development, many people's approval. It's finally got to the stage. We're on set. And they've missed something that makes no sense whatsoever. But if you point it out, you know, there are ripples, but people will be embarrassed or caught short, or someone should have picked it up that it makes no sense either, emotionally or literally logically for the story. And then there's that awful phrase that you hear sometimes, particularly from directors for hire for the week, you know, who who really don't want to be phoning the head office. And they go, well, if they're thinking about that, you know, we're doing something wrong. You go, they're always thinking about that, whatever the thing is, that's always the thing they're thinking about. And uh, I'm amazed that it happens. And it happens, I think, because scripts in the end, mostly are Frankensteinian. There's been a dozen versions of them. And, you know, the people who are pushing them across their desk are also doing a dozen other shows. And, Sometimes it comes right down to the blunt end when you're about to say it, and you go, "Why would I say that? I already killed his dad, or whatever." And and, and you try not to, you're trying not to insult anyone, but in the end, only you knows
2: your character and your journey. That's essential for me. I think you're there to look after your story and your your line as much as you can, and with the information you have. And sometimes the people, the powers that be, the growing ups who you you trust with everything, they're not. They're looking at the whole picture. They're not yeah. necessarily looking at your through line. And I think it's always all right. One of the things I learned very early on, it's always all right to ask something and people explain it to me like I'm an idiot. I don't mind them yeah, explaining yeah. it to me to an idiot, as long as I'm making them think of my through line. Yeah, and quite often when I've questioned it, they've gone, oh yeah, we didn't know that. Because they've missed
0: it. Well, there is this thing, isn't there? Because we're actors and in the end, we're hired to do the thing. And uh, when you see something, you go, this is bad. This is wrong. I wouldn't tell that person they already know you're not actually able to go up and say that because that's just rude. So you have to phrase it like you're an idiot and you don't understand Mm -hmm. and explain to you. You don't really mean that. You mean, this is wrong. It should be something different. Mm -hmm. And you have to go up, just like directing an actor if they get something wrong. I've taught directors as well. And I go, if you approach an actor and you say, start a sentence with don't, you will never get the performance you want. Mm -hmm. If you tell them, don't, I don't, that's too much or that's wrong. They're just thinking, how can I not get things wrong? Give them Mm -hmm. something to go for. Mm -hmm. Give them something to hide. You know, in the same way as an actor, if you go up and say this is wrong, immediately it's the wrong tone. So you, you have to phrase it. But have you not found through your uh, career that there is this fine line always to be walked between, uh, you know, I want to curate this and make sure it's the best version of my character, at least if I can't, you know, have effect on the story. And I don't want anyone to be at dinner somewhere else go, he's a bit of a pain in the ass though. He's always fucking stopping and asking questions. So there's a, you know, I, I earlier on, was always questioning things, and now uh, I, th- I still have those same instincts, and I just don't do it as much because I can see other people have difficult days, and I don't want anyone to go around and go, "Yeah, it's, you know, it's not worth it."
2: You're always. I'm, I'm now about at things. the point where if anybody's talking to me at a dinner party, I don't care what they're saying as long as they just mentioning my name. <laughs> 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 but when yeah, I was a young true. actor, the first thing that I. I, I clashed with me was I was playing a policeman and I went and spent a lot of time with coppers who were my rank that I was playing. And I felt very responsible to these guys Yeah, uh, because they'd let me into their lives. They'd been very sort of open with me. They told me all the things they hated about police dramas. Mostly it was about the you never see the paperwork, and I sort of understood why you never do because it's not. Yeah, 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 things like that. And then I got to my to the set on the first day, which was at my house, my character's house, and it was massive. And I said, "Sorry, but why have you chosen this house for him? You know, is he on the take? It's like he's the only breadwinner. His yeah, wife's yeah. not one. And I know it's just a nicer place for us now. And I went, yeah, but it says it says immediately the wrong thing about my character. He would never be able to live in a place like this." And it really annoyed me. And from then on, I was like, I got very nosy. From then on, I would say to designers, so what type of house is it? What car have you got them driving? And stuff like that. And I might think
0: you're you're, after authenticity. And that's not, there is a version of the police that we have on telly Mm. that bears no resemblance to any of the policemen who uh, have opened up their lives to me. Uh, Mm. None of it. Procedurally or culturally or anything. I've just never seen accurate policing. You know, I, I was... I shadowed some homicide detectives in Los Angeles for a series I did called Awake. and I went to the costume designer and I said, "Look, up, first thing, let's talk about what we're wearing because, uh, you know, they wear ill-fitting—not ill-fitting—sorry, uh, non-matched suits. They buy cheaply for work because they're sitting in shitty cars and shitty houses and terrible places, and then they change to go home mostly into sportswear." And she went, "Well, the other actors are wearing Armani," and I went, <laughs> "What?" She goes, "Well, they're, they've already—they're wearing Armani," and I went, "Well, that's ridiculous." She went, "Well, it's up to you. You can wear." Horrible, you know, non-matching suits, if you like. You are the lead. We want you to look good. And I went, all right, well, just the lower end, Armani, maybe, you know. (laughs) and That's true. This is why, you know, when you do – somehow I felt with soldiers, both in civvies and uh, in Green Zone, you know, the way Paul works and in uh, Black Hawk Down too, there were – you know, these were recent conflicts and these were real people watching it and the people we're making the show about be watching it from whether they're in a house or a homeless shelter or prison or they'll be watching it. Uh, when you play real character if not an, I mean I was playing an actual real person but when you play real people or you know a real situation you do feel that responsibility mm. uh, to do something different because you know that person will be watching you or those people watching you, and it's it, it can be frustrating when when uh you know that when the, the cliches are reached for instead of the truth but it's it's Unless you've generated the show or unless you have a lot of sway in the show and everybody is on the same page, we're reaching for authenticity here. You have to give it up because that way madness lies.
2: What do you think, just from your persona as a leading actor, what do you think a leading actor needs to do on a set um, in order to set tone and stuff like that? First of all, as I get
0: older, I don't know about you, I open scripts and I go, I don't know, I think I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm a bit off this part my agent goes no no you're the dad I go, oh, right i'm the dad I oh, well so that responsibility is off me now um i think we do this thing which has a serious place in the world and can be important and more you know the less people listen to politicians and scientists the more narrative fiction provides people with a template or a even a life raft at, you know times when they feel isolated or alone uh, but nonetheless you know, we're not at the sharp end of uh, the healthcare industry or down a mine or teaching. You know. mm-hmm. It's got to be fun. It's fun. Even playing very serious scenes, it doesn't mean you've got to be clowning around the whole time, but there is no excuse for behaving like, you know, for bullying and shouting and the tension. There's a lot of directors I've worked with who think if the scene is tense, you've got to create an atmosphere of kind of terror and tension on the day because they want to feel it. Well, we're actors. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have to be in love to play in love and we don't have to have a horrible screaming atmosphere machismo in order to put that in front of the camera. And um, so my responsibility is to make sure that everybody is uh, free enough. They can do their best work and, and has a good time. And I, I I like to play music if I'm the number one on the call sheet. And I, and I did that on a couple of series I've been on and the directors have come in and sometimes and go, look, it's the crew aren't comfortable. And I go, mate, I know the crew. They're all friends of mine. They come to my house every weekend. We love the music. You're finding it a bit stressful and I'm really sorry, but that's what we do so we can tap our toes, you know? Mm. Um, and I just like the other actors to feel like even though it's a lie they've got an infinite number of takes and nobody's watching them nobody's judging them and uh, you know if you do it right then even if somebody comes into that atmosphere who is normally authoritarian or works through you know discipline and fear they can't because you've just you, you, you've built up an immunity to it yeah. so yeah i try let's try and uh when, when possible, I try and make sure that everyone realizes we'd, we're incredibly privileged to do this rather silly thing that sometimes has value in
2: the world absolutely i think that's true and I, I think it's just simple things sometimes like turning up on time uh, sort of making sure you you know you say hello to everybody you know they yeah. just so it sounds easy that but sometimes i've worked with people who just don't do that
0: <laughs> i am a bit and, shit at names how are you with every, the, everyone's names on the crew? i'm
2: great george i'm really great no well, I, I, I get
0: to wear badges if i can i get people to wear a sticker and then they lose it off the first day and i go mate i need it for a week i'm really sorry
2: I'm, t- I'm like lions with names on the film set. It's I'll know your name, and then if I bumped into you two days after the job had finished, I just it's gone. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know who you are. But lastly, before we wrap up, I just want to ask this, because this is really important. It's about um, rejection. It's about not getting roles. It's about uh, critics, things like that. Have, have you grown a thick skin to all that now? I mean, did that really knock you as a younger actor? But it's all, well, it's all
0: changing as we get older. I mean, you know, because there are fewer parts and they are not the lead and it's less money. And so like, everything shifts. It doesn't shift for the directors or the agents or the writers, but it really shifts for an actor. So that's uh, a thing you have to process. And, you know, I, I think it relates to the bigger thing in life of how do you wake up every day and train yourself to be grateful for what you've got uh, instead of resentful for what you haven't. And, and that, that applies whether you've got loads or whether you've got nothing. You now there are people with virtually nothing. I've met, you know, we started off talking about soldiers, playing soldiers, so I've been privileged to meet lots of... You meet someone with who's lost both their legs, uh, and they managed to live their life, so they're incredibly grateful that, A, they're alive, but they've got their arms because their mate lost both arms. And the ones who lost both arms, if they're lucky enough and, and I don't know, magnificent enough to uh, think themselves through this, they're grateful they can still see and hear, you know, and have no limbs and stuff. And so... Uh, you know, I've got lots of stuff materially compared to other people, which is an incredible privilege. And I've also got, you know, a family and my health and all this stuff. And um, so, yeah, I, I find it easy. Our profession is one uh, where other people's success is in your face because it's not just in the back of your head, it's on the side of a bus or the cover of a magazine or or whatever, you know, uh, or on telly. Um, And I, I, I don't do it perfectly, uh, but I, you know, I, I, can, I know what I'm reaching for and I do it imperfectly. I can find myself, like anyone in any profession, thinking that other people's lives are much better, either their personal lives or their professional lives, their financial lives. Uh, but at least I recognise that that's an unhealthy instinct and I have some tools to go to. First of all, alarm bells that go off uh, so I don't go too far down the pit, and then some tools to correct back to trying to make myself grateful in the day. And the the really basic ones before you get to anything more advanced are sleeping, eating, exercising. Those things will keep you some way in whack. And then trying to value, uh, I'm just gonna say, I'm not gonna try and paint myself like Mother Teresa here, but because we're actors we have a bit of a profile, we get asked to do charity things all the time. And as many as I can do, I do to remind myself that, you know, not because I have a big heart, but to, to feel better about myself. And, to, and, and I guess in some ways to remind myself how lucky I am because I get to come in contact with people who, you know, I do a lot with the red cross and like, you know, there are so many people in this country who are come from unimaginable horrors and, and, uh, you know, had a biblically a medieval journey of torture to get here. And now I here trying to live on five pounds a day and are living in limbo. And, you know, so just making myself be of service and in contact with people with less goes some way to redress uh resentment you know bad reviews oh, fuck it i don't know how you get over that it stings you can read a million people telling you're amazing and one person telling you you shit and that's the one that that uh and i i have no advice how to get over that but the other <laughs> things you know we all should get out of bed and try and find it's easy for me to say as you know it's easy for, people pointing the finger, easy for you to say you've got food in the fridge and they're right you know i think poverty makes people unhappy and financial insecurity makes people desperate but Still, the only way to get through it for everyone, for me at least, is to try and find what I'm grateful for. And I, you know, I, I may not get the jobs I want, but I do get jobs. Mm. You know, and if I ever start moaning about it, I, you know, shoot me. Mm. It's like those people. Don't you hate on set? You're on set, and some some fuck is going. I can't believe it. You know, the call me at eleven o'clock. Didn't use me till two. It's sitting in my trailer you know, my heated or air-conditioned trailer with internet and people bringing me cups of tea where they got me from my five-star hotel and I've had to sit here for two hours while all these other poor bastards who've been here since six in the morning have to pick up my dirty underwear and don't earn what I earn in per diems. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I, remember being so with
2: an, I remember being with an actor who was claim, complaining about a job he didn't get because he was on the job that he was doing with me. And how was that? Right, like,
0: right. <laughs> that's <laughs> like, very funny. Oh,
2: thanks a lot, Jason. it yeah. has been so great to talk to you. Go oh, back thanks, and watch. Who's doing this to you?
0: Can I come back for one episode when you're ready, when your producer Simon's ready, and do this to you? Of course, I, you I, can. I, I, It was my idea this time. I hate talking about. Uh, how i act or what i do i don't really know because i but i'd no, love well, to I'm off-
2: a, I'm a, you can but i'm hoping in this season that i am offering up my experiences as well as you we are go but along. To, to, to take
0: one particular part uh, and dive into that
2: oh yeah we could do that yeah let's have a look at that i have to think about who that is do no, you, listen, let, let me
0: be- ask you what this one question to go away with okay if a plane went down tomorrow and i was in it yeah. First of all, I hope I don't have to get on a plane tomorrow. But if a play they go, the actor who played Lucy's Malfoy died. And you know, I've you and I have been doing this for 30 odd years, mm-hmm. you since you were a kid, me since I was a young adult. And um and I I don't mind that. It is it's fine. I'm happy to be in this If a plane went down tomorrow, they'd probably say the governor from Walkie Dead, I guess, although you've done millions of uh fabulous, you know, iconic parts.
2: No, what they'd say probably is that guy from Men Behaving Badly has gone down in a plane. That's what <laughs> usually happens to me. <laughs> Does it,
0: is there any part of it that that, that bothers you? In that, what that way? Having, so you've done this enormous array of parts, you know, both uh, sympathetic and unsympathetic, and you continue to do them in varied media, and, and yet you would be defined by this one part.
2: No, no, not at all. I'm so grateful to have done that part in that play. And actually... It is. It's a huge part that people sort of identify me with. But I I have enough other stuff in my life that people come up and remember me. I've recently just released a Blu-ray of One Summer. I saw.
0: Which, by the way, okay. I don't know if this belongs to the podcast or not. It may be that I ended up an actor because of One Summer. (laughs) I don't know, genuinely, and I'm not saying it's to be cheesy, because... There are you know, various different things. I can't play pop psychologist on myself too much. I don't know why and how I drifted into this thing. Could have gone a million ways. But I'm from Liverpool. I was a kid. I was a teenager. I went to school with your co-star in one Spencer, summer, Spencer, Spencer Lee. Lee yeah. And this was someone I knew. And then he was on telly with you. And they were telling a story. And it was incredibly compelling and great. And I think it might well have lodged itself in my brain that it is possible to go from this strange little insular, you know, uh, liverpool jewish community that i came from which was a tiny tiny bubble and there were people who did things in the arts and i'm not sure i ever forgot that i'm not sure I, uh, it, you know I, I think it might well have planted a seed that, that came to fruition years later yeah uh, um, so uh,
2: it's like you're to blame. You, you, you and john sim have both said to me um when i was a kid i watched you and that's why i became an actor so that's i think
0: a- it might it <laughs> might well be uh, in there as part of the reasons So uh, um, you owe me a life of comfort and security.
2: (laughs) The world can blame me. (laughs) Listen, mate, thank you very much. That's great. Uh, um, Go back and watch Civvies, because honestly, particularly what you were talking about with the PTSD thing, I thought, this is revolutionary.
0: I'll tell you, there's a thing I did that if anyone's listening, they might want to watch rather than Civvies. There's a thing I did that left such a profound impact on me, uh, and maybe... I don't care whether people watch the things I do, but in terms of the things I will remember that I did, it's called Scars, and it's on Vimeo. You can find it on... on, And it was a man who normally makes documentaries who had interviewed a very violent person who had spent a life of violence, grew up around extreme violence, perpetrated extreme violence, who he asked... uh, This this documentary director was starting to make drama docs. He said, can I talk to you about violence in your life? And uh, we won't use any details at all of anything that you tell me, but as to inspire a script, I might improvise with actors. And he started to interview him and they didn't stop for a year. And during the course of it, this man had essentially a nervous breakdown as he relived the things that he buried in his traumatic past. And when Leo, the director put together a script, Channel 4 went, I don't know about the script so much, but the interviews sound interesting. And so I acted out verbatim, just a tiny slice of these interviews, of a man steeped, born uh, and living in violence. And it haunted me. It was a monologue because we were just recreating these audio interviews, but on camera. And I, I've never had anything take me over so much, terrify me so much, terrified for my kids living in this world, knowing there were many people like this walking around, sitting on this volcanic and dangerous, disruptive uh, energy uh, and prepared to do violence at, uh, with the slightest call. But so if people s- want to know what PTSD is, they should watch that, not Civis. They should watch uh, Scars on Vimeo. And that's a, that's a real guy- it's his words exactly and uh, it's an insight into the what happens when we don't get in early enough and help kids out of environments like that
2: well on that note we will go thanks Cheers, mate See ya. who am i this time is a just voices and do production produced by simon lenigan music by greg hatwell edited and mixed by russ keffert at audio egg and presented by me david morrissey